Hello, everyone. Hello, my loves. I hope you are doing well. And welcome back to another episode of Evolving ABA. And again, I'm Dr. Nasia Sorrentione Ulazi. And my goodness, we have a very special guest today. We are here with the amazing Dr. Thomas Subbo. Can you say hello to everyone, Dr. Subbo? Hi. <laughs> <laughs> welcome, welcome, Dr. Subbo. And for those of you who do not know, Tom Subbo is a good friend of mine, and he is also a colleague, and he truly is amazing. Amazing and brilliant. Brilliant. So I'm so happy to have Dr. Subbo here so we can come into contact with his brilliance and all that he does, especially in the space of acceptance and commitment training. Dr. Subbo, I could say a million and one things about all you are up to, all of your contributions, but I really want to start by letting our listeners know who you are in the world of ABA. So could you please just give us, tell us a little bit about you, your background, where you come from, where you were trained. We'd love to hear about it. I, I was probably a behavior analyst before uh, before I could read, because I learned to read from behavior analysts. I learned to read using SRA reading cards. SRA reading cards were developed by Carnine and Engelman by Distar, and uh, they use the principles of learning to break language down into its very smallest components and build up from there. Um, all my friends from grade school remember learning to read from SRA reading schools quite fondly. We all kind of raced to get to a high point in the training series ahead of everybody else. And it was a very friendly, collegial uh, competition and Dr. Sabo, I just have to stop you because you've taken me back, right? I think you might have to be a certain age to really yeah. know SRA. <laughs> that was me, right? Catholic you school, too, right? Yes, SRA. Remember the different colors, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> so, so the it, these were reading series that came in like a giant box with oh. different colors of cards that you were laminated you pulled them out you read what was on the card you answered the questions your teacher came over and coded your answers and if you did well then you moved on to the next card in in the color series and you worked your way through the color series we were all racing to be the first one to crack open the next box after you've gone through 100 200 cards in yeah. the first box it was it was a fun way to learn how to read and I'm so glad that you've had that experience too. So, so I don't really know if people have any clue just how much of an impact applied behavior analysis has had upon literacy in the United States. That alone is important. Then, of course, there's project follow through, which I had nothing to do with, which compared the general effects of traditional style education to progressive education to 
direct instruction. And of all three, the one that had the most impact on learning goals was direct instruction. And surprisingly enough, traditional education came in second compared to some of the more avant-garde forms of open education, progressive education, which isn't to say that progressive education got it wrong. Like if you read Julie Vargas, she has like her textbook on instructional strategies and applied behavior analysis. She has a big photograph of Maria Montessori. Oh, wow. And and, And she talks about the uh, the gains that come inside of a learning environment where kids are allowed to follow what things they're interested in learning about rather than just what the teacher has in store for them. What Vargas indicates is that it's a combination of the two. It's a, it's both the foundational skills that need to be developed and then it's the curiosity and excitement and exploration that has to be fostered nurtured and developed it's both it's not one or the other i like vargas's approach a great deal but i digress because you asked me about my background and so i told you a little bit about how i kind of see myself as having been a behavior analyst before before Mm -hmm. i could learn to read um, but, you know, I, 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 well, when I was in uh, high school or junior high school, I became a graffiti artist and uh, I was pretty unrepentant as a graffiti artist. And uh, I got kicked out of school and was sent to an emotionally behaviorally disordered classroom. And I was terrified, but don't wow. send me there until I got there. And then I got there and I found a bunch of graffiti artists in there. I was like, oh, this is cool. <laughs> but, you know, surprisingly enough, my parents didn't like that idea. I didn't think that was a very good place for me to be. So they spent a year saving up money to send me to private school. Wow. And they sent me to interviews for private schools. And I proceeded to sabotage every single one. Um, I think they made up that name on like, like with, with my name, in like in mind like sabotage you know (laughs) no so so but I I basically they would always ask the question you know why do you want to come here and I would say I don't and you don't want me to either because I'm a you know I'm a graffiti artist and uh, they they would say oh wow well thank you Dr. Sabo let's go back because I don't know if people know that part of you you're a graffiti artist yeah, I grew up in, in New York City in the 1960s, and it was, um, uh, well, I, I had spent a year in Virginia, and uh, they didn't like us down in Virginia. We were uh, Northern Jews, liberally oriented. Uh, my parents were Eastern European uh, asylum seekers, so they didn't appreciate us very much in Virginia. So we we hightailed it back to New York. We got the message, you know, that and and I was just this angry, long-haired kid. Yeah. Um, 1972, I didn't know how to make friends in my new school. I didn't talk to anybody. And this one kid said, Tom, I think you're cool. You should come hang out with my friends. And he took me to the park. And everyone who was hanging out around the band shell in New York City was either a frisbee player or a pot smoker or a graffiti artist. And all the girls liked the graffiti artist. So I wanted to become a graffiti artist. And there we go. 
<laughs> well, and fortunately, like the 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 kids that were hanging out were deeply invested in the art of graffiti. This was and and my friend who introduced me to graffiti, he had a vision like at 10, at the age of 10, he had this vision that this was not about getting up. This was not about ego. This was about the graphic arts, yeah, creating a movement. And I mean, how does a 10 year old have that kind of vision? I don't know, but he did. And his friends did. And I became like one of the kids who advanced the art of graffiti in New York during the early 1970s. And, uh, you know, pretty soon we're hanging out with break dancers and rap artists and, and it was the birth of hip hop and no one knew, but that's what it was. And I was pretty hardcore committed to it until this one interview for one school where Rather than kind of like ushering me out the door, the interviewer said, huh, tell me a story. And I, you know, what, like a graffiti story? She's like, yeah. So I told her a graffiti story. And she asked me to tell her another. So I told her another. And she said, huh, what if I were to give you school credit for writing these stories down? And I thought she was full of it. So I was like, yeah, right. She's like, no, seriously. And I, I you know, I kind of like laughed it off and said, yeah, have your people contact my people. We'll talk, you know. <laughs> but but uh, she convinced me to go to that school. This is what happened. At that school, not a single person chided me ever about graffiti. I was encouraged to write stories about it, write poetry about transitory art forms. I was encouraged to develop short drama that captured the life in the subway yards that I was describing to my teachers when they asked me questions about it. And very slowly over the course of 18 months, these teachers shaped my writing from writing graffiti to writing short fiction and poetry and drama. And I wanted at that point to give back. I wanted to give back to others. And uh, I decided to go to college. Many of my graffiti artist friends, they didn't go to college. They made a career out of graffiti, which is awesome. But I wanted to go to college and become a teacher. And I uh, ended up at New York University, which had a very progressive education, uh, secondary education curriculum based on whole language approaches, a constructivist philosophical approach to education. And uh, the idea behind it is kind of like, you know, the learner is in charge, the learner creates their own world, creates their own strategies for solving problems. It's the anti-behavioral approach to education. And uh, I loved it. Oh my God, I thought it was so cool. It was so hippie, it was so sexy. It was all about creation and it was all about existential learning. I just fell in love with it. Wow. Dr. Sabo, I want to, I just want to interject. I'm so enjoying you. I really am sharing your story. And what I want to presence listeners to is from where you started, right? We started this conversation and you shared, you know, your experience with direct instruction with SRA and just listening to you share yourself in process and how you evolve years 
later coming into contact with this whole language approach, which is very different from direct instruction. Thank you for sharing. Thank you, well, but continue. No, I, 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 it's really good that you do that. I mean, I think I bounced around a bit before I found my center. And the way that you, I mean, this podcast, your podcast is about evolving ABA. And I yes. think that you look, and, and the, my whole point about telling my story when people ask me is to encourage anybody who's listening to tell their own story to themselves. Because I don't think that it's by accident that any one of us lands in applied behavior analysis. And more importantly, if you really look at the broad sweep of psychology, applied behavior analysis is the poorest neighborhood in the broader city of psychology. It is the city that it is the part of town that people don't want to go to or people tell you don't go there. And so why is it that you're here? Why is it that you have made this choice to be here? And I think that if you look at your own evolution, you'll find the history of reinforcement that has landed you here. And it has you find excitement inside of putting together the experiences in which people are able to learn and develop successful behaviors. My own my own experience from that point forward was really interesting because I... I wanted to work with the kids that no one else wanted to work with. I wanted to work with graffiti artists and gang kids. I wanted to work with the kids who uh, other teachers thought were misfits and would never learn and can never learn because they come from bad backgrounds or whatever other excuses people, teachers come up with. And uh, I lived in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, uh, on the South side, which was at the time, probably the poorest neighborhood in New York city. And it was like, like block by block rubble and on every street corner people selling smoky dope smoky dope you know like i mean it's was like it was it was it was a war zone and uh it was mostly a puerto rican and dominican community i was one of a very very small handful of 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 artist uh households inside of the of that community and i uh, petitioned the board of ed to let me teach at the local junior high school junior high school 50 and i got a job working there and uh, i built a classroom filled with love filled with family filled with excitement for coming into school with kids who were truants kids who were three and four years behind in reading kids who had basically not come to school more than 50 out of 180 days per year that they were supposed to be in school and they came to my classroom every day. They they found their friends. It was interesting. Like, I mean, how is it that you're in seventh, eighth, ninth grade, and you've been going to school with the same kids every year, and you don't know their names, and they live on the same block. You are everybody lived on South Third Street in that community. How is it that they, you don't know each other? Mm-hmm. But they didn't. They didn't know each other. They knew nothing about each other. And we built a community inside of my classroom. And we used all the things I learned at NYU. We used all of the the reading out loud and the drama and the conferencing and the publication and everything else that I learned, which was really, really cool. And none of it worked. Hmm. Quarter of the year went by. They took their standardized tests and nobody had come up a point. And I thought I must be some kind of failure. 
and NYU had loved me and they had sent a student teacher to come and work with me. And the student teacher was kind of like my IOA, like my student teacher could see, no, I was doing the stuff that I was taught to do and uh, I was doing it well. And even my, my mentor from NYU came to visit and he's like, yeah, this is, this is awesome, but it wasn't working. And so I went to visit their their homes and like a couple of the families were like, you should come to church. And I didn't know why they said that, but I did. I, I went to church. I went to their uh, the Pentecostal church in the community and, and hung out with my kids. And they, you know what they do is they, they take the kids after like a, a, a main sermon, they take the kids into a special room to, to get like biblical instruction. And the, the teacher in that classroom was doing this really interesting thing which I immediately like recognized, oh, this is what they taught me not to do at NYU. So this teacher was like, okay, let's, let's, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna ask you a question and you're gonna give me an answer. Hmm. This is the answer you're going to give me. And she would tell everybody what the answer is. Everybody, what's the answer you're gonna give me? Awesome, here is the question. And then she would say what the question is. And then she would say, now everybody, what's the answer? And everybody would say what the answer is. And she'd say, left side of the room, what's the answer? And then she'd say, right side of the room, here's the question, what's the answer? And then she'd say, Nasia, here's the question, what's the answer? And, you know, everybody's like, and I'm like, obviously, that's why nobody has learned anything by the time they've gotten to me, because all they've done is this drill and kill education that's exactly what they taught me not to do they yeah. taught me to do drill and kill education and we went outside my kids and i afterwards and we're all standing around on the block you know and 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 i'm like so what did you learn and they got so excited like, you know, like so there's this guy his name's moses right moses he's tripping around in the desert comes across a burning bush how strange is that more importantly, there's a voice coming from behind the bush. And what's that voice? It's God. God's talking to Moses, telling him, you got to go talk to Pharaoh. Tell Pharaoh, you're taking your people out of Egypt. And Moses is like, no, 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 no. Wrong, dude. You want somebody else? Maybe my brother Aaron, not me. God's like, no, you the man. You... My kids were telling me this story with that level of animation. Wow. wow. And I figured that whatever it is that that teacher in that Sunday school had, that's what I want. Yes. And yes. I started doing that in my classroom. And over the course of the next six months, they basically took everything that they taught me at NYU and shoved it over to the side of my desk and started doing this choral. I mean, if you recognize what, what that teacher was doing, it's choral instruction. Yes. It's, 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 it's low tech active student responding and it's the rudiments of direct instruction absolutely which is my background that's where i started right my first position um in behavior analysis was given to me by dr joe lang um he had a morning side morning side program on the west side of chicago back, uh, it was in the early 90s. So I can totally relate to what you're saying. Right? Totally relate to that. Thank you for sharing it. 
Yeah, that, that, you know, Joe and 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 Kent and all of the people who have uh, built out the Morningside model have done extraordinary work in so many different communities and for such a wide variety of different people. I'm, I'm deeply indebted to to their scholarship and their commitment to communities. It's pretty cool that you have that really background. Is. Yes. But, you know, like, so, but what was interesting was that after a couple of years of doing this, and and I, in the evenings, like my buddy Enrique Vieira, who lived like three blocks away from me, we both taught at this school that all the other teachers, they lived like 60, 80 miles away and uh, drove in every morning. Enrique and I, we lived in the neighborhood, Enrique, so we hung out and uh, and, and he said, we should go next door because they just opened up an alternative resource center for young people called El Puente. And we went next door and met with the founders, uh, Luis Acosta and Francis, uh, um, ah, what's Francis's last name? I don't remember. And Gino Maldonado, these, these three visionaries who grew up in that community had created this alternative resource center for young people. And their vision was that because no kids in that community who got educated stayed, everyone who got educated left, and everyone who didn't get educated died by the time they were 30. Mm. They had this vision of creating a center for kids to inculcate in them this value of staying in the community and rebuilding the community. And uh, Enrique and I wanted to be part of that. And so we started a high school equivalency program at El Puente. And we ran that for a couple of years. And uh, El Puente is still going strong. It completely took over Brooklyn. It, it, uh, Francis uh, Lucerna is her last name. She took over junior high school 50 and turned it into a really good school. Um, they're just outstanding. Anyway, we, we did that for a couple of years. And while I was teaching at junior high school 50, but I found basically that public schools were trying to kill children. Mm. And I just couldn't, I couldn't hang in that environment long-term, you know? So wow. I was also a rock climber and uh, I decided I wanted to just kind of follow my, I did some work in mental health and yeah. I also um, just wanted to follow my climbing career. And so I kind of like had a day job at, as a mental health worker and uh, I created like an outreach program for Hmong and Vietnamese uh, refugees. But my passion at that point was climbing. And periodically I would get asked, oh, I, I got this job working with Outward Bound. And Outward Bound is really interesting because Outward Bound uses the wilderness mm. as a metaphor for everything that's important in life, communication, trust, responsibility, yes. risk-taking. You go out into the woods and you rock climb and uh, rappel and uh, build camp and cook and break camp down and leave no trace and go to the next camp. Sometimes you travel on terrain that has no trail. And all of this gets related back to math class and your job and your relationship with your siblings and your relationship with the people next door and and your family and it's it's a cool model for for helping people make sense of their lives and make new commitments uh, and and I did this with New York City Outward Bound 
it was a couple of hour bounds, but New York City hour bounds was the coolest because it was it was working with kids that I wanted to work with, you know, like yes. who uh, could easily have fallen through the cracks and who the system wasn't helping. And um, at some point, I moved out to Colorado. And I started my own climbing guide service, continued to do a little bit of outdoor experiential education work. But I took a side gig on the weekends working in developmental disabilities. And that was where I had the opportunity to work with a 25-year-old woman who was in a wheelchair. Mm. And this young woman in a wheelchair, she uh, was very aggressive. And she would elope, so they strapped her wheelchair down with a buckle underneath her seat so she couldn't unbuckle it. And because she was aggressive, sometimes, and she was, oh, she was bowel incontinent. Mm. She was bowel incontinent with no physiological reason for being bowel incontinent. I worked with, with everybody who lived in this one small house, but um, but she was my primary. And the day that I arrived, she was out in the community and I just got to read her book and find all this out. And then they they came home and the staff people who had been out in the community said, oh, you're her new primary. Awesome. Uh, she needs to be changed. We haven't had a chance to change her in a couple of hours. And so I said, OK. And so I got some chucks. I laid them down, got some uh, rags and uh, run them under warm water and helped her out of her wheelchair and started to clean her up. She'd been sitting in her stew for a couple of hours, mm. all caked in. And uh, while I'm cleaning her up, she's grabbing at my genitals. She's like digging and smearing and I'm doing like, you know, my, my best Aikido to try and like, you know, keep myself clean. And the other staff people are kind of smirking and thinking it's very funny. Mm -hmm. I didn't think it was funny. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I didn't think it was funny at all because of two things. One, because, um, Here's this like young woman. I didn't tell you, but she's verbal. Uh, she speaks two languages. She likes doing math problems in her head. And uh, she has no physiological reason for being bowel incontinent, but nobody has taught her how to poop on a toilet. And I asked them, how come nobody's taught her how to poop on a toilet? And they yeah. just kind of smirk and say, you try. So I was like, okay. But, you know, the other thing that really disturbed me was the fact that I realized, wait a minute, I'm a dude. Yeah. I'm providing intimate care to a young woman who is verbal and who uh, has boundary issues, who's aggressive. It just didn't seem right to me. I shouldn't be providing intimate care for this woman. But they challenged me to teach her how to poop on the toilet. So I took them up on the challenge and I went to Barnes and Noble to find a book on potty training because I didn't know how to do it. And they didn't have a book like they they found Fox Nazarin on in the computer system, but they didn't have the book. But what they did have is Behavior Analysis for Lasting Change, a book by mm -hmm. Beth Silzer Azarov and G. Roy Mayer. And this book at that moment in history was written for 
it was written for people with no behavior analysis training. It was easy language to understand. And it just made such, you know, it just kind of clicked. Like, yeah. you know how you have that experience when you learn behavior analysis? Oh my God, this makes sense. Like find out what happens immediately before and after behavior, find out what the maintaining variable are that, that reinforces a particular behavior. And then you can change the conditions under which the behavior occurs and ultimately the behavior comes under the control of those conditions. How cool is that? I just loved it. And I began to think about what were the controlling variables for her behavior. And I started uh, putting her on the toilet and reinforcing the behaviors that I was looking for mm -hmm. with the reinforcer that I was uh, hypothesizing would matter to her. And that was direct attention. And uh, or she started pooping on the toilet for me, not for anybody else, just for me. And so it was like, you start to see this like really, really awesome behavioral contrast. And uh, the other staff members eventually, and it took a couple of months, but then they were like, okay, well, maybe could you, could you teach us <laughs> what you yeah. thought them? Her behavior changed. And when her That's behavior awesome. changed, I just like her whole life changed. And guess what else changed after she started pooping on the toilet? Well, to really get it, you have to imagine what it's like to be a person in a wheelchair who nobody wants to change. She would sit in her stew. That wasn't an isolated occurrence for hours at a time, very frequently. So she had very severe sores on her on her bottom. Yes. Once she started pooping on the toilet, all those sores started to dry up. Mm. And that changed. Guess what else changed? The establishing operation for the aggressive behavior was gone people would pay attention to her and uh, the aggression went away love it i love it thank you tom subbo for sharing that that story that you have just shared makes a difference right it's just bringing me back to my whys for behavior analysis and why i am so passionate about the work that i do Thank you. And and now that you've you've shared that, you have really brought us up to not exactly current, but I imagine that was your entryway into um getting formal training in yeah. be behavior analysis. And I want to make sure we have enough time because I want our listeners to know you're you're up to some pretty amazing things, right? You just published a book. You will be um, hosting a, a training on acceptance and for acceptance and commitment training in Nevada in January. Um, you're leading that work, so I want to make sure we keep some time to talk about that. But if you could just share, starting from where you got your training, where you were trained in behavior analysis. I think that would be very beneficial to our listeners. Yeah, so it's, it's, it, I mean, it, it, falls, it follows directly from that experience with this young woman. And I knew at that point that I wanted to go to school for behavior analysis. 
And uh, the company I was working for asked me if I would direct behavioral services. And I said, no, you need to find somebody who actually knows what they're doing. I'll work for them. And they, they brought somebody up from Colorado, Jeff Kupfer, who had gone to school at University of Florida and been a student of Ed Malagodi and uh, who immediately recognized that I needed to go to grad school. And he suggested to me to go to, I get a PhD and then come back and work with him. Um, and uh, so I started reading the literature to see where I wanted to go to grad school and uh, whether I wanted to get an EAB degree or an ABA degree or just a plain BA degree. Yeah. And as I was reading the literature, I came across the work of Steve Hayes. And Steve Hayes was doing something very interesting. He's a bona fide, dyed-in-the-wool behavior analyst, trained by the very best in the 1970s. And he became a clinical psychologist because he was interested in using behavior analysis to help people with um, uh, complex verbal behavior who were deeply stuck in one way or another. And he developed acceptance and commitment therapy, which made use of metaphors, sometimes physicalized metaphors, as ways to help people re-see their relationships with their thoughts and their emotions mm -hmm. and begin to undermine the dominance of the way those thoughts and emotions and memories and bodily sensations would would uh, orient people's behavior in the world. You know, our private behaviors, they're not causal. They don't cause us to do anything, um, but their behaviors nonetheless that uh, after we emit them, we think about them and we think about our private behavior, that private behavior that we're thinking about is no longer a behavior. It's actually now it's like a thing. It's a stimulus, it's a rule, it's a statement about the world and we follow it sometimes even when the world is different than the way we've just described it to ourselves. Well, this, this made a great deal of sense to me. And it made sense to me because I've been using the wilderness as a metaphor for life. And I began to think, what if I were to bring all of my experiences from outward bound and outdoor adventure therapy into applied behavior analysis. And so I wrote to Steve, I said, can I come to study with you at UNR? He didn't write back. Um, but I also wrote to people at Western Michigan University. I wrote to Alice Dickinson and to Jim Carr at Western. And they said, come here. They said, come to Western Michigan University, take our core undergraduate curriculum. They recognized I had absolutely no background in psychology. So of course, Steve didn't write me back. And of course, uh, they wouldn't have accepted me into their graduate program, but they said, you should come and take our core undergraduate curriculum and be a research assistant in some of our laboratories. And then when you apply to graduate school, you'll be competitive. So that's what I did. I went to Western. I was a RA in Linda LeBlanc's lab and Cindy Petrus's lab and in Wayne Fuqua's lab. And when I applied to graduate school, then I got to go where I wanted to go. And I went to University of Nevada, Reno. I wanted to study with Larry Williams, who was doing some pretty cool things with organ 
uh, organizational behavior management and applied behavior analysis. And I wanted to work with Steve Hayes. And uh, um, I went to, to, to UNR and uh, gradually convinced Steve to teach a ACT class and invite in behavior analysis students. And uh, so I took the very first ACT class that he taught that he allowed behavior analysis students into. And uh, me and a couple of other people, Donnie Newsom, Greg Smith, Emily Leeming, uh, we were the BA students inside of that class. Josh Pritchard uh, hung out in that class too. He did the audio visual for us, but he oh, wasn't wow. taking the class with us. But that was the, the very beginning. And there were a couple of other behavior analysts before, like I, I didn't know this at the time. I just found this, this out this year, but Heidi Eilers had been a doctoral student in the behavior analysis program with Steve Hayes and had been doing applied behavior analysis with kids with autism in her clinic in Tahoe. But the way Dr. Eilers is, is just really, really low key and quiet about some of the cool things that she does. And so she didn't, she didn't like go big with it, but I kind of like, thought this is this is not just something I want to do in one clinic. This is a direction for evolving applied behavior analysis that I would make it. great impact on how we are relating to the rest of the world, how we are relating to psychology and how psychology and the rest of the world see us. Because we had gone down this road in applied behavior analysis of being the experts being the technocrats with the technological solutions. We're the people with a plan. We walk into a room, we know exactly what we want everybody to do. And with our best diplomacy and persuasion skills, we convince everyone to do what we want them to do because we know best. Mm. And right. that, yeah. And, and to, to me, that just like seemed like, a dead end road, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like we needed to find a different way to interact with the world. I love it. Thank you for sharing all of this because a couple things you shared, just shared, I had no idea. I don't know how I missed it. You went to Western Michigan. I did not know that. So thank you. We have not that much time left. So this is what I would love to do, Tom Subbo. You, a couple things that um, people are probably experiencing right now is what an amazing teacher you are, really, even through this podcast. And I must say, people have commented um, on my, my speaking around ACT, especially in the last couple years, um, has certainly, I've increased in my fluency and understanding of ACT. And for, for those of you who don't know, but you've seen it, it's largely due to my conversations and training with Tom Subbo, truly. And I have been around for a long time. I've had a lot of teachers and a lot of coaches Tom Subbo, you are truly one of the best. And I'm so grateful to you um, for the time that you have really poured into me. And again, increasing my fluency in act and my understanding contributing to that. 
So I want to talk about two things because I want others to come into contact with you and your work. I want to talk about your book. You recently published a book. And I also want to leave a few minutes to talk about an amazing project that I have an opportunity to be a part of, Capture a Cloud, which is a, a training that you are hosting in, the, in Nevada in January. And again, I have an opportunity, the opportunity to join you and some amazing others on that project. So I want to start with the book. And we will make sure that there is a link to this book when we uh, publish this recording. So just tell folks a little bit about that book. Uh, because I think I, I learned to read through behavior analysis and because I became interested in teaching using behavioral instructional strategies, Behavior analytic instructional strategies are unlike other instructional strategies in that they focus on discrimination and generalization. They focus on teaching people to respond to this in the presence of the other and not that in the presence of the other, to respond differentially in different situations. This discriminative repertoire brings behavior under stimulus control, tight stimulus control. And I began to think about how complicated ACT is and how if I'm gonna develop an iteration of ACT that is suitable for use by applied behavior analysts within the scope of practice of behavior analysis, of applied behavior analysis, then I'm also going to have to think about how I'm going to build up competence because it would be unethical for people to learn just a little tiny bit about this thing called ACT, which is also used by psychotherapists and uh, not have the competence to do it effectively so that you can do it within your scope of practice. So um, there has been an influence within our field recently on separating these things out, scope of practice and scope of competence. And I think that's a very, very important distinction to make. And so I started developing teaching strategies based on applied behavior analytic instructional strategies that help people wrap their heads around and make use of an assessment procedure that helps people, helps to identify what are likely the interfering private behaviors that if you could shift them just a little bit would bring the bigger part of a person's behavior under the control of reinforcement contingencies that you're setting up as a behavior analyst. So I like spent the next 15 years kind of honing and developing these instructional strategies so that behavior analysts could make use of ACT in ways that are consistent with the other things that behavior analysts are doing. Developing a functional assessment procedure, developing a functional analysis procedure that is an analog procedure to verify your predictions, your hypotheses about what are the interfering behaviors that are private 
that people are engaging in and developing an intervention strategy that's pretty quick and pretty easy to use. Like the whole thing, you can basically do it in an hour with somebody and it doesn't matter how old they are. You can use a variety of different strategies to do this with little kids and, and, and older adults. And then I began to think this probably needs to be in a book form in a work and a self-paced training yes. book form. So I um, was approached by New Harbinger, would I write a book? And I was like, yeah, this is a book that I think needs to get written. And they said, yes, definitely write that book for us. So, uh, and unfortunately that I started writing that book before COVID and then I got COVID and I had kind of like the, the long form of it, which yes. nobody knew what it was. Like nobody had a name for it. I just knew that, I could work like four hours a day and then I was done uh, okay. for months. So the book didn't like the book. It's only getting published now, but it probably should have been published two years ago. Um, it's here. But it's, it's here. here. Better late yeah. than never. Yeah. What is the name of the book? And again, we'll link it to the podcast recording. I don't know. It's uh, Act and Applied Behavior Analysis. Act and Applied Behavior Analysis by Dr. Tom Subbo. Got you, got you. And thank you for that contribution to our field. We have, and I, and I know you have a meeting following this, but I wanna do two things. And if you could very briefly share this amazing project that again, I will be a part of and some amazing others, if you can share that and then Save, save a, at least two minutes for a question I have for you um, that I ask everybody who joins uh, the Evolving ABA podcast. But can you talk about the project? Yeah. Well, so um, starting in 2012, I was still a student, uh, Praxis continue, uh, continue Education and Training uh, emerged as Steve Hayes' company for uh, Teaching Act. And I participated as a, as a learner inside of that. And then subsequently, I was an evening presenter in ACT boot camps for psychologists. And then we developed ACT boot camp for behavior analysts. The model of, of, of this has always been a model where experts come and do their thing and the different experts kind of like dovetail on each other, but they all kind of do their own thing. And what I found throughout the years is that people leave those workshops completely excited, like loving it and wanting more. Also not being ready to use what they learned on Monday morning. And it just seemed to me like, like I wanted, I want to continue working in that vain because I love Steve and I love Praxis. It's a great company. And I also want to begin exploring some additional and alternate routes towards training people. And it seemed to me like, what if I got together a team of strong trainers who could do one single integrated approach to improve those discriminative repertoires and performance repertoires lots, lots, lots of errorless discrimination and repeated opportunities for practice and, and feedback to shape up the basal skills and then expose people to a variety of different trainers 
who are using acceptance and commitment training strategies with diverse populations, with trans people, with the LGBTQ community, with autistic people, with the indigenous communities, uh, with recovering people. And so I have a network of people who I want to build a new ABA with, or I want to expand ABA with, with whom I want to set in motion the beginning of what is the very natural next step in applied behavior analysis that we move beyond working with people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and that we begin tackling broader human problems. I love it. I love it, Tom Subbo. That you actually answered the question, right? It's always how do you see ABA evolving? And I love um, the direction that you are taking ABA in in your realm of influence and beyond. But I don't think it's me. I think it's we. I mean, I think you have influenced me more than I have influenced you. Like, for example, like, you know, when I kind of started talking about this, I started talking about, like, you have a platform, I have a platform, Jonathan Tarbox has a platform, um, so does Brianna Coer, and so does Kendra Thompson. Let's put us together and create a space for some of our our our, our emerging colleagues, people like, like, yes. um, uh, and Asha Anglade and um, and others and and you said let's not do that let's instead of creating a space for let's create a place with and I began to re-see on the basis of of what you taught me Michael that's like way cooler like way 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 cooler than the notion of creating space for. Like yeah. that's just more paternalism and uh, like recreating the power structure. Let's not do that. Let's do something very different. Let's invite people to create this thing with us. Create yeah. with, absolutely. Yeah. Create with, power with. I right. mean, we've had this conversation. When we create space for, it's typically more of the same. It's more of the same. More of the same. So when we create with, we create a whole different space. So thank you for that. Thank you, Tom Subbo. Um, can you let folks know, and again, we'll link this information to the recording, when the training will be held, where, um, that's important information. Yeah, it's called Capture a Cloud and it's run through uh, uh, my company, Act Now ABA. And uh, although it's my company and, and I, I, I formed it as a LLC, I run it kind of as a, as a nonprofit. So you and, and the other presenters kind of serve as an advisory board. Mm -hmm. And uh, ultimately, either we'll move it into being a nonprofit or we'll, uh, we'll develop it as a B Corp. I don't know what the future of the organizational structure and the governance of that company is, but I definitely don't want to run it like it's my company. I want to run it like it's our company. And... Uh, um, this particular training, Capture a Cloud, comes up in January, January 11th to January 14th. It'll be in Las Vegas, which is a, 
January is a good time of year to come to Las Vegas because like the weather's like shorts, short sleeves. It's awesome. The venue is a really, really nice venue and it's away from the strip. So it's easy to get parking and mm-hmm. great restaurants around there. The pricing is really good. We have uh, like maybe one more scholarship available. We're giving away 10 scholarships um, to people from um, communities that uh, have traditionally been marginalized and we have terrific student rates like unparalleled student rates uh, very very inexpensive for students we have um, group rates that are available for any three people or more who register together and uh, early bird rates that are going to end really soon, like one more week of early bird rates, which are really, really low. After that, it bumps up to the normal rate. So now is a good time to register. Like right now, I should probably like do something to get this this word out there that our early bird rates are going to end really soon. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Tom Subbo. I appreciate your time. Um, all you have shared, and again, your contributions um, to evolving ABA. Much well, appreciated. Yeah, this this podcast is awesome, and more importantly, just the the notion of evolving ABA. Like like ABA is a science based approach to helping people perform better, and why not allow it to grow and change and develop more compassionate, more scent based ways of approaching the needs that humans in our midst are asking us to help with. Absolutely. Absolutely. So again, whenever I meet with Tom Subbo, there's always more. So hopefully I can talk you into coming back for another episode because I feel like we're not done, but we're out of time. So again, thank you and my loves. Thank you again for tuning in, for listening. Much appreciated. And we will be back again for another episode of Evolving ABA. Bye-bye.